Hello and welcome to Conversations. It's our opportunity to introduce you to some of the investment experts we work with and discuss investment concepts and outcomes of interest to you and your clients. This series is focusing on silver linings, that advantage that arises from challenging situations. Climate change is possibly the largest challenge facing our world in modern times. As well as needing urgent action to prevent a more cataclysmic outcome, dealing with it presents an array of investment opportunities. Today I'm joined by GSFM CEO Damien Mack and James Sinidis of Munro Partners, Portfolio Manager of the Munro Climate Change Leaders Fund, available as both an unlisted managed fund and an active ETF. Before I hand over, I need to read this important notice. The information contained in this podcast is general and does not consider your objectives, financial situation or needs. The information and views contained in this update reflects, as of the day of recording, the current opinions of the participants and are subject to change without notice. Before making an investment decision in relation to a fund, investors should consider the appropriateness of this information, having regard to their own objectives, financial situation and needs, and read and consider both the product disclosure statement and any additional information. GSFM Responsible Entity Services has produced a target market determination in relation to all of the GSFM funds. The TMD sets out the class of persons who comprise the target market for the various funds, which can be downloaded from our website. This podcast was recorded on Tuesday the 23rd of May 2023. Damo and James, over to you. Good morning and thank you, Tracy, and welcome, James. The purpose of our podcast series, Silver Linings, is to sit down with our funds management partners and discuss in some depth their funds with a view to sharing their insights with you. And hopefully those insights will make an issue clearer and hopefully uh, that clarity is of benefit to you in your discussions with your clients. So that's our objective in in a broad sense. And we've covered every asset class on the shelf uh, up and until now. And today we have a really interesting conversation with James about the Munro climate change product. So James, climate change or climate has been an area of interest for Munro for quite some time. So can you discuss with us the broad investment case for climate and what climate change means to you in the context of this fund? Yeah, thanks very much, Damo, for having us here on the podcast. Yeah, so as you say, we've been looking at climate change and sort of the impacts of climate change on the companies across the world for quite some time. So, you know, Nick right back sort of at the start of his buy side career, sort of 15, 16 years ago, was, was interested in this thematic. So it was everything from solar panels, wind turbine companies, insulation companies, et cetera. And we've sort of built up a universe of companies that we've tracked over that period of time. And we haven't always invested in them because obviously post the GFC, you know, it sort of took a backseat climate change. But we've always sort of tracked these companies and kept an eye on them. You can't really go onto Bloomberg and say, give me a climate change stock or give me a climate change sector. You sort of have to build it up from scratch and sort of try to understand the underlying drivers of where the company's revenues are going to come from in the future. Sort of fast forward through to sort of three, four years ago, we started to notice a lot more people talking about climate change and net zero goals. And probably the key sort of company that I think came out first was, was probably Microsoft when they talked about actually going to net zero, not just net zero, but actually going back and actually taking all the carbon they had emitted as a company out of the atmosphere over a period of time. And, and sort of that was a big sort of moment for the corporate side of things in the US as sort of a big sort of leading company to sort of do that. And then we saw a lot follow, you know, Apple, the other big tech names were doing the same, but we just started to see a huge momentum swell on the corporate side for these net zero targets. And we realized, okay, this is actually going to translate into real dollars for the enablers of that sort of technology. So when you sort of think about Microsoft spending that amount of money, that money needs to go somewhere 
somewhere to actually complete that service, I suppose. So we actually realised that we we're going to see an inflection in growth for some of the enablers, whether they be industrial companies that do heating and cooling for Microsoft offices, whether they be the actual power companies that were going to supply the renewable energy to Microsoft. We knew that we were going to see a pickup in orders, those type of companies. And at the same time, we've seen obviously the investor base of global investors move, move quite a lot as well at the same sort of pace. And so we've seen a lot of investor groups sign up, you know, big super funds, et cetera, sign up to net zero. And that sort of just means that these corporates are going to continue to push along these objectives as well, because they're both aligned, the corporates and also the investors. Sort of fast forward a little bit further. And what we did see as well was a big pickup on the government side. So the government sort of went quiet, sort of through that sort of Trump era. Europeans were always there, but, you know, even down here in Australia, we had obviously a lot of conjecture around the uh, the Glasgow cop, whether Scott Morrison was going to go at the time. He was obviously prime minister and ended up going and, and we signed up as well to net zero. But for a few years there, it was not really happening on the government side. It was really the corporates and the investors that were leading the charge. But now since then, you know, in the last couple of years, we've had pretty much 90% of the world's GDP by government actually now sign up with obviously the US, the change in administration to the Biden administration from Trump. And then obviously in China as well, they signed up as well. They're uh, net zero by 2060. But we've seen a huge sort of groundswell from government, but also even before that, the corporate investor side of things. So you know, we think it's a pretty exciting time to sort of be looking at these enablers again of decarbonisation. So, so on this point, and this is something that fascinates me, governments can change their minds in an election cycle. It would be a courageous decision to reverse the commitment to net zero from here, but you can't rule it out. And indeed, the companies follow governments in aligning themselves to achieve these goals. I know you can't audit or control what governments do, but how do you audit the sincerity of a company's statement that we are moving to a net zero world? What are your sort of windows into their activities to hold them to account? It's a great question, Tamo, to your point about, you know, governments can chop and change. One thing that I would say is that we do think that the biggest market, being the US, we do think that they have now established a very clear framework for the long term for net zero. It's called the Inflation Reduction Act. And you know, of course, there is chance that you can repeal laws, but it, it is very, very difficult in the US to get things changed. So we do think that that won't change now. And even if the political side did change back to sort of like a Trump style, you know, we're going to dig coal again, I, I really think it's very unlikely that come companies will change their trajectory. Even when Trump was elected, you know, all the utilities that had these sort of plans in place to build out their grids and change their grids to renewables, they, ne they never changed course. They never started digging coal again. They didn't, they sort of knew that Trump was going to be a four-year proposition and, and actually nothing under the surface would change. I and mean, so that's why we're quite comfortable that basically the momentum's there now for climate. In terms of auditing what companies are doing, it is a really interesting question because at the moment we're getting a lot of uh, news stories around greenwashing. So a lot of the corporates have signed up to 2050 targets and it's a long, long way away. The, the CEOs of these companies are going to be long gone when it's actually sort of has to actually occur by. So what we're seeing now is a lot of investor groups really getting together and, and we're sort of also trying to get involved with some of these investor groups as well around doing this audit work and actually doing this type of ESG analysis as well. Obviously disclosure is very limited at the moment, um, but it's all around trying to engage with companies on an ongoing basis. So we, we try to talk to our companies every quarter and part of that is actually asking them about their targets and how they're actually progressing. And as I say, there are a lot of investor groups much bigger than us. Um, sort of doing this as well and really going back to that company and saying, hey, last quarter you said you were going to target this in terms of decarbonisation objective. You know, did that actually occur? If not, why didn't it occur, et cetera? We do feel more comfortable that some of these sort of interim targets actually are going to getting work towards. And so that is actually um, something that we do see. So in a lot of cases, these big corporates don't just have the 2050 targets, but they got, say, a 2030 target, even a 2025 target for what they're actually trying to achieve. And that's obviously what we like to see. We like to see sort of signposts along the way because, yeah, we're 
we're all aware it's very easy to sign up something 2050 and, and not not do it. A three-pronged observation and question. Obviously, companies are including in their annual reports and statements where they are on the climate change continuum. Yeah. So presumably, if you're BHP and you've put in your annual report to shareholders, this is what we've achieved. If you're making insincere statements, well, then there are legal ramifications for that. So I suppose to some degree, you can rely heavily on those statements as fact. Yeah. And then in recent times, most recent times, interestingly within Australia, the regulator has been quite prominent in bringing to, bringing to the attention of investors greenwashing yeah. um, for investments that didn't reflect the representations, which is important, I think, in terms of confidence and the oversight of the industry. Now, in this particular fund's case, Munro are not saying you are only investing in companies that whose activities will benefit the climate. You're taking more of a financial bent on this to say, okay, okay, we have this powerful investment theme uh, gaining momentum. Where are we going to make money? Yeah. At a base level, is that what we're talking about here? Yeah, I think you're right there, Damo. Well, you know, we're trying not to be overly punitive and say, okay, this this fund can have no exposure to coal. This this fund can have no exposure to nuclear, etc. We're really interested in companies that are transitioning. And so, you know, we see a lot of investors out there basically screen these type of investments out. And to us, that's that's not the wisest thing to do because at the end of the day, these nuclear power plants are going to continue to run. They're just going to be owned by you know a different class of shareholders. And so, you're not actually achieving anything by just not not investing in those stocks or selling those stocks. What we would prefer to do is actually recognise that, okay, these companies are trading at a discount to what they're actually worth because they have these sort of issues within the company, but we want to find companies that are going to transition. So they'll use their revenues today that they get from coal or gas or whatever it might be, but they'll invest heavily in transitioning away from those assets. So you're right, our fund is not necessarily in companies that are all completely green today. They're, they're more transition companies. We do, we do have some companies that are just pure wind companies or pure solar companies or pure battery companies, but a lot of the fund is actually invested in utility or industrial companies that are actually building the grid of the future. So they are in the process of shutting, in some cases, coal or nuclear and actually building those, those new assets out. So net zero 2050 was a game changer, yep. for want of a better description. Can you just talk me through what's driving the move to 2050 and why? Yeah, so a lot of companies have identified 2050 as that that period of time and, and, and obviously a lot of governments as well. It's going to take clearly a couple of decades to do all this. It's a huge undertaking. So if you look at like renewables and transitioning from oil and gas, which still makes up the vast majority of sort of power use today across, if you think about transport, industrials, et cetera, if you're going to transition off that, it's a huge undertaking. So the actual renewables that need to be built actually have to go up 20x just in the US alone over that period of time. So clearly it's going to have to happen over a long period of time. So I don't think anyone actually realistically expects us to be able to get off fossil fuels in the next sort of decade. Also, a lot of these technologies are not commercialised today. So if you think about moving away from oil and gas in transportation and heavy industry and so forth, it's just not going to be able to occur. So a lot of sort of the technologies of the future are going to need to be maybe things like EVs for heavy vehicles, like think about aircraft or shipping or trucking and potentially also hydrogen. And you just don't have the electrolyzers today to do that. So a lot of these stories are close-in stories that we're investing in today. So it's, you know, wind turbines, solar panels, you know, really tangible stuff that works today that's really economic today, that's below 
the cost of getting power from natural gas or from from oil or from coal. So there's an economic case today to do it. And that's where we really like to invest close in today. But we think this fund and this opportunity is going to be an area for the next couple of decades, because as you go through time, as you get into 2030s, there's going to be the next opportunity. So it's going to be the hydrogen opportunity that's not available today, but it's going to drive our investments from 2030 to 2040, as example. And so, yeah, we do think it's going to be a long-term thematic that's going to all change over a period of the next 20 years or so. So yeah, as I say, some things are attackable today or investable today. Some things we don't think are investable today, but you know, people sort of know about, but are sort of on our watch list for the back part of the decade or, or early next decade. So it's really, really exciting. As you see sort of more projects and more sort of technologies come to the market, it doesn't mean you have to invest in them today, but you know, you, you put them in your universe and you just track them over time to the point where you know, you're comfortable that they're actually legitimate technologies and, and opportunities. Yeah, time is important in this whole continuum on the basis that there are many, many firsts. You know, for example, hydrogen really is a first because there isn't the proof of concept and, and the investment in sufficient equalizers to make that technology work. Yeah. Moving to aeroplanes and truck fleets at scale, again, is is a first. No one's doing it. Yeah. So these milestones can't be achieved quickly. So investors really have to have a patient and long-term time horizon when evaluating these opportunities. So how do you sort of build your portfolio in looking at technologies that will mature a decade from now, for example, to technologies like wind and solar, for example, that are profitable today. How yeah. do you find that balance? Yeah, great question. You know, we often get the question, you know, what about hydrogen? It's going to be such a huge opportunity. I think obviously we get that question a lot down here in Australia because you know, we, we are, so yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah. And we, and we are obviously in an advantage position from a, just a natural resource perspective. You know, we've got plenty of coastline and so plenty of wind and we've got plenty of sun as well. And so we're in a naturally strong position to be able to provide renewables to the world, whether that be creating green hydrogen here and one day being able to maybe ship it up to Japan or something like that. I think we do get that a little bit more down here. For us, it's probably too far away to invest in. But at the end of the day, when you're talking about creating green hydrogen, you need a lot of renewables, right? And so you can actually invest in renewables today. doesn't mean that they're going to be used for green hydrogen, but they can be retooled in the future or basically used in the future for that green hydrogen. And so you need to start with the renewables. So it's a picks and shovels. So you buy the wind turbine turbines and the solar panels because today they're being used for electricity generation for the grid or for a home or something like that. But in the future, that same technology, that same company is going to have orders that go into specific green hydrogen plants as an example. Or if you're talking about the US and and, and a hydrogen opportunity, we actually own a company that owns 70% of the nuclear US. Now in the future, they're going to get credits or they're going to be incentivized to basically create hydrogen from nuclear power, which is obviously zero emissions. So we think that's really important as well because nuclear is probably not an ideal long-term solution. It's, it's critical in the, in the short term, or at least for the next couple of decades in this, because we're just not going to be able to build the renewables quickly enough. To your point about, you know, hydrogen, not just hydrogen, but what are you going to do about air travel? I mean, <laughs> you and I are not going to probably jump on a hydrogen-powered plane tomorrow and feel particularly safe and put a battery on a plane that's going to weigh many, many... Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so it's not going to be doable, right? But, you know, what we are going to be comfortable on as consumers is going to be going on a plane with sustainable aviation fuel. So we don't own any stocks in that space at the moment, but, you know, we have in the past, we've looked at companies that produce sustainable aviation fuel. And that's obviously the the technology that the airlines are looking at today because there actually is sustainable aviation fuel out there and people are using it. Yeah, that's just an example of like a small niche or bridging fuel that you could, technology that you can invest in today that has a legitimate use. So so those are the sort of opportunities we look at. Of course, doing planes and trucks at scale is, that's years away. Yeah. And it's also a big leap of faith in the consumer's part, as you quite rightly illustrate. But electric cars or EVs, that's a segment that's here 
here and now, and that's growing rapidly. And, and it's not just Tesla. Can you just talk to us about that space and how you see that playing out? Yeah, so EVs is um, interesting. So if you think about like smartphones, Damo, we've obviously spoken a lot about tech investments at Munro to yourself and your clients over, over a period of time. And you sort of think about these penetration curves or these S curves as we call them. Think about the smartphone penetration curve, you know, it accelerated at sort of 10 to 20% penetration. And you got very, very quickly to 70 to 80% penetration where smartphones are today. Like most people have a smartphone. Around. Um, you think about laptops, you think about streaming music, you think about streaming video games, etc. They all sort of go through these S curve situations. And EVs really exciting at the moment because it's passing through that sort of 10 to 20% penetration. In China, you're over 20%. You're actually at 30% of new cars sold in China are now EV. Europe's lagging. That's approaching the 20% mark. US is lagging. Europe yeah, it's probably approaching the 10% mark, but all up blended, you're sort of talking about mid-teens. And so we think we're getting to that sort of acceleration point where you actually speed up the adoption of EVs. Now, now talking about Tesla and why Tesla is important and Elon Musk's view is important is because he's taken the view that he's willing to sacrifice short-term profitability for the company for long-term market share. So what he's doing is he's cutting price. He's cut prices, you know, up to 20% in his cars this year to stimulate demand, partially because he thinks we're in a soft economic environment. But what that's going to do is going to make Tesla's more affordable. So you no longer sort of, saying, okay, to a BMW driver, you know, would you like to switch to Tesla? You're actually saying to a Toyota Camry driver, would you like to switch to Tesla? And so basically you're opening up a whole new population of people that can afford to buy their cars. And the other EV companies are sort of doing something similar, particularly in China. So what we do think is you're getting pulled to the left in terms of the adoption curve for EV. So it's quite an exciting time. It's not necessarily a good time for the auto companies because as I say, they're cutting price, which is not good for their margins short term, but long term, you're basically increasing the penetration for EVs and, and, and basically the demise of, of ice internal combustion engine cars. So it's a whole bunch of ramifications for that. Elon Musk is a is he's a very controversial figure, I suppose is yeah. the easiest way to describe him. But Tesla in itself is an incredibly sophisticated company and its manufacturing processes and plants in the auto industry really are global best practice. This is what's afforded Tesla such fat margins that's allowed them to cut prices, to create, to disrupt the competitor, really. Yeah. That's amongst, I mean, you more or less said that at the investor day recently. Yeah. The question I ask though, the, the easiest thing you can do is cut your price. How does Tesla put its, you know, once the worm turns, how does Tesla go back to a higher price? Yeah, I'm not sure that they will actually ever move their prices higher significantly on the sort of cars today. I think what they're going to try to do, to your point about their scale, they've got these huge targets out there, right? Like I think this year they want to do 2 million units, which is a bit of a stretch. Um, you know, he's, he's very ambitious, as you say. I think long-term there, you know, he wants to do 20 million units, which is 10x on today. And so his ambition is huge, right? But I think what he's actually going to try to do here is he's actually going to build, he's trying to build scale. And so he can lift his margins over time by having that scale, that sort of throughput at his plants. Now, obviously the big question mark now is these two new models that he's going to bring out. Obviously, one is the Cybertruck, which we've spoken about and obviously, you know, tried to launch. I think he threw a rock at the window and it smashed the window accidentally. <laughs> so, you know, not everything goes to plan, but, you know, that's that's an interesting product and he's obviously got huge ambitions for that. See if it wins or not or if it you know, beats a Ford F-150 or not. But the other one, probably more importantly, is the smaller car. People are talking about, like, is it the Tesla 2? I don't know the name of the model. It's obviously under under the wraps, the white sheet at the moment. We don't know what it looks like. But, you know, that's his sort of real go at trying to attack the mass market. You know, so they're talking about that being 50% cheaper total cost of ownership than a Toyota Corolla. So, wow, yeah. So that could be seriously disruptive. Now, as I say, he, um, he's he got huge ambitions and we'll see if he actually is able to deliver on that. That's where the super bulls on 
on Tesla end up saying, you know, these things can be bigger than Apple and Saudi Aramco put together, you know. That's, I think he said that. But that, this is why people believe that they actually could be the only car company in the world one day, the Super Bulls. And that's, that's how you end up with these huge, you know, upside to price targets. But I don't think we're in that camp, but can see that this company could be the biggest company in the world if they can get this right, because this is the biggest total addressable market in the world. It's uh, significantly larger than the smartphone market, right? So if they can be the Apple of the car market and take the 80% of the profits, the, the potential market cap gains in Tesla are are enormous. Are enormous, yeah. Now, look, I don't want to be a downer. I think it's really exciting, the evolution of EVs, not just from Tesla's standpoint, but clearly the competitors are going to want to come with him, take him on. Yeah. Now, Tesla, as you say, is his ambition initially is to get to 2 million units and his competitors won't do that many, but they'll, in aggregate, it'll be a large number. In terms of the customer experience, is the grid and the infrastructure there to service this explosion of demand? Yeah. And do you see that potentially as, as a fly in the ointment, if you like? Yeah, def- definitely, Dana. Like, if you think about the grid in the US, it's quite old and it needs seriously it needs serious uh, investment. Now, it's not as sexy as talking about like EVs and, and Rivian and Tesla and the Ford F-150 Lightning and all these sort of things. It's all kind of a bit boring. and it, But it's interesting from an investment perspective because it's a totally different opportunity. It's a very long-term opportunity. It's going to happen over many, many years. Um, but it's the kind of companies that, you know, you don't hear about on CNBC or on Bloomberg because they're just frankly not that exciting. But when you think about it, it's a great opportunity for these, these businesses. And so we are seriously looking at many, many companies involved in building out the grid because we know that it needs to be replaced and it also needs to be reconfigured. So if you're talking about wind, everyone can see the case for wind today in the US, but there's just a limited number of wind farms getting built because they simply can't connect them to the grid quickly enough. So if you're shutting down coal and gas, you have a grid connected to those plants. All of a sudden, you've got huge power sources coming out of Texas or some of these windy corridors in the US. You actually need to build the grid connections to that. And so who benefits there? It's the ENC companies that build the power lines. So it's companies like Quanta, which, which we actually own in the Climate Fund. It's just an industrial company that owns or that basically has a bunch of uh, electricians on the book. They basically build all the power lines. But it's also the utility companies as well that have that actually own the transmission grids, but also build the transmission grids. And it's a really excellent opportunity for them because they can say to their local governments and their state governments, hey, you know, you need X amount of investment in the grid and, you know, we, we want to get paid a rate of return on that. And that's how they make money. And it's very much a defensive type of investment because at the end of the day, it's regulated, but you know, it's very long-term investment opportunity as well for them. Yeah, not the most exciting companies, but definitely plenty of growth there as well. So interesting. One observation, most fortunate in my professional career that I frequently traveled to the United States. One observation mine, which has always fascinated me and frustrated me at the same time when you look into this, is that for a country that has built its reputation on technology and been at the forefront of technology, its ability to absorb the technology into broader society for productivity gains, its slowness is quite remarkable. You know, if we looked at, a, at an airport, any US airport, if yeah. you, and compare them to love him or hate him, Qantas under Alan Joyce, you know, you don't talk to a baggage person if you don't have to. You can mm. check a bag, whereas in the States, it, they're virtually still working on tickets. Yeah, yeah. So so for a country that is so far advanced technologically, yeah. as adopters of it, they're lousy. So here they are at the forefront of EVs and, and this switch to the grid. Mm. Will they take decades to move industry and society along with them or Biden, for example, and his commitment to this, do you really think that's the impetus to keep the momentum rolling forward? 
Yeah, look, the, the IRA is a huge deal. And some of these sort of fiscal policies, when you do go to the US, as you say, it is a different universe over there. You go to a conference in the US and you speak to the, the CEOs and the CFOs and so forth. And, you know, when they get economically incentivized to do something, their shareholders are telling them to do it and to grow, they do it generally. So even talking about like those boring investments, like the grid investments and things like that, like people want to see them make those investments and deploy that capex, right? Because they can see they're going to get paid a rate of return on it. At the same time, the government's telling them, hey, you do this investment and we'll give you a credit for it. You know, you bring this industry back from China, you build out solar in the US, we'll pay you to do it. You build this EV battery plant, we'll pay you to do it. We'll give you a credit to do it. And the investors are saying, build it, build it. And the customers are saying, we need it built as well. Like if you think about Tesla or Ford or whoever it is, they're, you know, they're doing the partnerships on shore as well. And so I, I agree with you, Dave. Every time you go to the US, it's so different. <laughs> it's really this sort of can-do attitude and, you know, they really will go after these opportunities. Yeah, we're very confident that the companies, are, they will continue to build this, regardless of really what happens politically now that they've got this IRA credit yeah, yeah, yeah. And in many ways, we need the US to lead because we need these things to be developed scale. Yeah. And the US market is so large, it exactly. demands scale. Exactly. Yeah. You know, when you're thinking about batteries and things like that, I mean, it's the, the sticking point for renewables today is obviously, you know, it doesn't always, it's not always windy, it's not always sunny. And so you need battery technology to store the, the renewable energy at, at some point. And clearly, like batteries are going to follow that sort of cost curve that we've seen in solar and wind and so forth. As you've got scale, you know, the price drops, right? technology becomes proven out, gets better and better. And so we need to see that in batteries as well. And to your point, it's, that's, it's going to happen in the US. What we've seen in recent times is protectionism. US first is catch cry coming from the United States. And, and indeed, they're looking to invest in certain technologies and minerals to develop their own capabilities first. Take what is it, cobalt. I mean, yeah. it's mostly produced in the Congo and produced in China. Yeah. That doesn't meet the political narrative of the Biden government. So as the world's moved to protectionist policies, for whatever reason, and mm. Eastern Europe is another example of where there will be a, a lack of investment moving forward for political reasons. Yeah. How does this all play out? Do you think about this yeah, in, yeah. in the climate quantum? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to your point, if you just take like an industry like the solar industry, the Chinese have just dominated it for, you know, the last decade or so. And they've dominated because they're the lowest cost producer. You know, you need a lot of power to, to make panels. You know, it's not the cleanest industry. And so the US and the Europeans have now realised this, particularly obviously the Americans. And so they're incentivising companies to build capacity onshore in the US. And so we think this is a massive opportunity. These US companies that previously under constant threat of Chinese competition, the bear case was always China, China, China. You know, now they're actually protected from the Chinese competition. They're actually given credits to build more capacity in the US or in Europe. So we have two investments in the climate fund. First, solar is one. So that's an American company that builds solar panels there. And another one in Europe called MyBurger. And it's a similar situation. So it's, it's a European company, Swiss company. We think basically the, the winner from European production that needs to shift back to Europe to show up their own supply chain of solar. Similarly, you know, if you think about like wind turbine companies, again, there's sort of three main ones in the Western world. Back when Nick started investing, there was sort of a dozen and most of them went bankrupt as they proved out their technology or didn't prove out their technology or they were beaten off by Chinese competition. And in the last sort of five to 10 years, you know, we've invested in these type of companies, but the bear case has always been, well, the Chinese are going to build this turbine to compete with this. It'll be better or it'll be cheaper or whatever it is. Now we think these companies are basically protected. And so you can go and invest in these companies like Vestas, et cetera, without that sort of fear of that bear case sort of being undercut on price or service or whatever. We do see this sort of geopolitical situation actually setting up favorably for a lot of these companies. 
Within the fund, and coming back to the fund, you group climate change into four categories. Can you just talk us through each one and how you weight them in the fund and how they apply to the fund? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Dana. So we have sort of priced or, or sort of estimated the whole cost of decarbonisation to be $50 trillion over wow. 30 years. So that's a huge amount of money. And there's actually estimates significantly higher than that. And when you look at sort of estimates of where the money is going to be spent, it's sort of across a few different areas. So it touches a lot of sectors, actually. So the biggest area is actually energy efficiency. So it's retrofitting buildings and homes and so forth. And so that's about 24% of the spend on it from an estimate from the European Investment Bank. And so lo and behold, our fund is designed to follow the money. And so we say about a quarter of our fund should be, all else being equal, invested in energy efficiency companies. And so that would be companies like Kingspan that I mentioned earlier, the insulation company that have been following 15 years, which basically helps customers save electricity from heating and cooling because using their insulation is significantly better than obviously using concrete, which has no insulation in it at all. So that's an example of energy efficiency and, and the type of company that could benefit there. Others would be sort of HVAC companies, heating and cooling companies, switching companies, lighting switching company like Siemens or or something like that. And so those are the type of companies we have in that sort of bucket of the portfolio. 18% of the money is going to be, of that 50 trillion is going to be spent on renewables. And so we say about a quarter of the fund should be invested in renewables as well. And and a lot of the companies involved in this space are the utility companies. As I mentioned, they're the ones that sort of switching off the coal and gas and they're actually going to renewables. And so so they're some of the sort of incumbent businesses that have been around for decades, as well as obviously the solar companies I spoke about, companies like First Solar or the wind companies like Vestas. So that's another quarter of the fund. A quarter of the fund we expect to be invested in EVs or clean transport stocks. Today, it's all EVs. We sort of spoke about hydrogen and so forth. You know, trucks haven't really moved yet. So today we see the opportunity really in the passenger EV market. So the investments there are Tesla, but also their suppliers, power semiconductor companies, battery companies, et cetera. So we have some investments there on semiconductors, one that we've spoken about, I think at a couple of conferences with you guys, American company that makes power semis basically at 3x the uplift as they go from internal combustion engine to EV in terms of their content in the car. Um, and so they get a very good earnings sort of tailwind from that. Samsung SDI is the other one in that space that basically has battery contracts with EV company, BMW, etc. The last piece is circular economy. So that's pretty much everything else. So think about sort of waste, water, agriculture, etc. Today, the investments we've got here are really on the waste side. So it's companies like Waste Management, which is the biggest basically garbage company in the US. Now, you said you've been traveling to the US for many, many years, Damo. I'm sure you've noticed the waste problem in the US as I have. It's probably the first thing that hits you when you when you order something to eat and you get ample serviettes and plastic forks and everything. It's it's pretty terrible um, compared to sort of what we're used to here. There's no sort of green bins, yellow bins, red bins, whatever it might be. Yeah, so there's a huge waste problem in the US. And, and this company been around for many, many years and picking up garbage is actually a really good business. So their core business is great and they own the landfills, right? So they're actually a top 50 landholder in the US. And those landfills, no one's permitting new landfills, right? So they've actually got a really strong strategic position and network. Now, what the company is now doing is recognising that actually there is a very strong environmental opportunity to their business as well. We've been speaking to this company for a while. There's been a pretty significant change in tone in the last couple of years. We always said we think there's an environmental opportunity here. They sort of seem to talk it down to us, but lately they've actually started talking about this a lot more. So actually we think there's about 15% improvement on their profitability, not today, but in sort of three to five years from them actually putting renewable natural gas on their landfills. So where they capture the emissions off the landfill and actually put it back into the, they refine it, basically put the gas back into the pipeline or use it in their own trucks or something like that. Yeah, so this is taking methane out of the landfill and then reusing that. Yep. 
yeah. and selling it. And they get a credit for that from the government, again, back to the IRA, but also back to the point about, we're talking about Microsoft, you know, we haven't spoken about Amazon and their, their ambitions, but very similar ambitions. You know, if you think about Amazon and their logistics network, they need renewable fuels, right? We spoke a little bit about sustainable aviation fuel. Now, this is just one that we think is more of an opportunity today because actually the company Waste Management has been using this fuel in their trucks already. So they actually already have the technology and they actually already do it. And so, yeah, we see a huge opportunity for them in renewable natural gas, but also um, in recycling as well, which back to the US and their waste problem, you know, they, they do have a major recycling problem. And then you've got companies like Starbucks, et cetera, you know, Coke and Pepsi that have these sort of issues as well. So you know that the money is going to be there from the customers to basically buy the, the recycled off, off waste management and so forth. So that's the last piece. To summarise, it's those four pieces. So it's energy efficiency, it's clean transportation, it's circular economy and, and basically clean energy. So those are the sort of four pieces and that's sort of a bit of labour for the underlying stocks that we look at within each of those four areas. We were talking before about technologies that are earning money today that are commercial today and then we're talking about technologies that are decades in the future. Through this discussion, we're talking about companies that are large, profitable today. Yeah. They're really not a lot of small cap exposure in, in, in your fund. Yeah. Just listening to the names you describe. Can you just sort of talk through the, the risk profile of, of what you own? And Great question, Damo. Thanks. What we're saying in this fund is we want it to approximately equal about a beta of 1.2. So we, what we're saying is we don't need to go super far out the risk curve to try to access the tailwind of decarbonisation speed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Correct. Now, you obviously can do that, particularly in the last couple of years. There's been a huge amount of IPOs in the hydrogen space, in the EV space, you know, Nikola on the truck side. But, you know, you sort of know what's happened to a lot of these companies. They basically haven't got orders or they haven't proven their technologies. And, you know, the share prices in a lot of cases are down 80, 90%. We obviously look at these opportunities and we see these very long-term opportunities. But, you know, really at Munro, what we're trying to do is follow the money today. And we just don't feel you have to go that far out to do that. You can actually find these opportunities hiding in plain sight. Like I just spoke about waste management. No sell side analyst, no Wall Street analyst had put that 15% increase in their EBITDA from the renewable natural gas in their model. We could see it from speaking to the company. We've spoken to the company, I reckon, half a dozen times in the last six to 12 months. We've spoken to all their competitors. We've obviously observed others talking about renewable natural gas and what the government, the US government, has said about renewable natural gas as well. We've observed what the customers want to do with their fleets, with their, their trucking fleets. And so we just saw it as basically hiding in plain sight, free money lying on yeah, the ground. Yeah. Obviously, the companies still need to spend and execute to actually do this, but we do feel like they have the proven technology today to do it. So we think it's a low-risk opportunity for them. So that's the sort of opportunity that we're looking at more, more closely yeah. than looking at it, you know, something that may be significantly more sexy than picking up garbage, but you know, it's probably not going to be proven until the 2030s. The one thing that's undeniable where we are now that it doesn't matter whether we're talking about institutional investors or whether we're talking about retail investors. There is a growing cohort of investors who want to invest, make investments that are in line with their preferences, ethical and otherwise. Yeah. And it's a matter of, well, how do we provide access to companies which deliver on that promise? Yeah. Investments that are in line with people's moral and ethical preferences. And the risk is, is that you end up, like the time fund, the BT time fund of two decades ago, yeah. you end up exposed to a lot of small cap companies and when the music stops, it, it's ugly. Yeah. This isn't the case with this fund. I think investors have got a real opportunity not only to find a, a capital vehicle that's aligned with their ethical, whatever their preferences are, they're valid to that individual and that's really all that matters. Yeah. It's a, it's a great way to deliver on that promise and at the same time increase 
reduce the value of their capital over time as well. So congratulations on on having the courage to launch the fund. What are we? We're about 18 months down the road now. Yeah. You've been very successful in terms of capital raising. You've, you've raised about 50-odd million here in Australia and another 50-odd million dollars uh, from Canada. So $100 million investment in this fund. You're at the forefront of the, the most successful investors. So congratulations on that as well. It's been a really fascinating discussion, James, and thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thanks, Tom. I really appreciate it.